Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Revelation chapter 11 this morning. Revelation chapter 11, we're continuing on our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, just trucking right along. And today we find in our text a pivotal moment in the book of Revelation. It points us back to Revelation chapter 10, verses 6 through 7, where we find a declaration of no more delays. Then angelic host says, there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sound by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. The time has now come in our text for the seventh trumpet to sound. Stand with me and let's read uh, about this event here and what it entails. Revelation chapter 11 Beginning in verse 15, we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time of the dead will be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, pills of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, as we sit humbly before you today, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak into our lives, Lord. That as the word of the seed goes out, that it would take root in a heart that is prepared to hear and and to receive. And Lord, that it would take root in in our lives and change and transform us. You are a God who loves to redeem and change. And Lord, we are a people who need just that. So will you come and speak, speak into our hearts this morning, Lord? Draw us to yourself. Do the work that you need to do in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. How many of you would say you're directionally challenged? Anybody say they're directionally challenged? Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting only two guys raise their hands. The other guys, the rest of you guys are liars. So I don't know what the Lord's watching right now. But um, all I have to say is thank God for Waze and Google Maps. You know what I mean? Uh, GPS is literally a gift from God, but it isn't fault proof, is it? You can still get lost with these things. You ever put an address in Google Maps and you ended up somewhere else and you're like, how did I get here? I thought this was a sure way of me getting, not getting lost, and here you are, lost as all get out. Well, back in the day, which wasn't too long ago, these devices didn't exist. Some of you don't know what I'm about to say, but some of you do. Uh, back in the day, we had one way of navigating, and it was called Rand McNally. Some of you in this room are saying, who's Rand McNally, and what does he have to do with this, Right? Well, Rand McNally actually was a person, but he was 
but it's also a company that prints roadmaps. And I want to say this, you don't know what living is until you're going 70 miles an hour down the interstate with the map opened up in front of you trying to find your exit. Uh, listen, that, that is living, let me tell you. And interesting enough, if you miss your exit back in the day, there was no recalculating. You went to the next exit, you turned your car around and came back to the exit and got off and got on your path unless you were brave enough to try and backtrack, which that's typically what guys, oh, I'll find my way. Oh yeah, next thing you know, you're totally lost and uh, you've wasted like three hours, right? If you do end up getting lost back in the day, there was one solution. You would pull your car into a truck stop or a gas station and you would ask a human being for directions. And, and let me just say that, it, you know, that was totally acceptable in that day to talk to people at the truck stop. Like today, not so much, but back then, you know, it was totally acceptable to, to ask for people for directions. It was totally the walk of shame for dudes to do that still back, back in that day too, you know. Um, but, but, you know, it r r brings me to a place where it reminds me of a story that Billy Graham told. I just had like a, the train left the tracks for a second there, choo-choo, you know, that happens. But Billy Graham, it reminds me about when he asked for directions one time and he, he said to a, uh, he, he, he was in a small town and he was there to preach and, and uh, he had some time to kill. So he thought, well, I'm going to go uh, mail a letter that I've been holding on to. So he uh, figured he'd just venture out in this little town and find the post office. So he did and he walking around. He can't be that hard, you know. It's small, uh, and yet he can't find the post office. So he sees a, a young boy sitting on a bench, and he says, he walks up to the young boy, and he says, hey, uh, can you give me directions to the post office? The little boy pointed him the right direction and all of that, and as he was getting ready to leave, he thought, hey, I should invite him to come to my event tonight. So he leaned over to the little boy, and he said, hey, if you'll come to church tonight, then I'll tell you how to get to heaven. And the little boy thought for a second, then he looked back up at Billy Graham and he said, no thanks, you don't even know how to get to the post office, so, you know, <laughs> you're going to tell me how to get to heaven? I don't, I don't think so. Well, I'm thankful to say that there is a roadmap for life called the Bible, and listen, it gives us clear directions about how to get to heaven. Ask yourself this question this morning, think about this, where would you be without the directions that were given in the Bible to get to heaven, where would you be right now? Where would you be? My guess is that none of us would be here. I guess all of us would be totally lost. Just as all roads do not lead to Columbia, Tennessee, contrary to popular belief, not all roads lead to heaven. There is only one road. It is the Grace Faith Highway in Jesus Christ. That's the only road that will lead a person to heaven. And what we need to know is Jesus was sent into the world to give us those directions. Did you know that? Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. What is the good news? It's the gospel. It's the directions to heaven. Jesus 
although he did come to be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, he also came to be the original Rand McNally to heaven. He came to give us the directions that we need. If we didn't need those directions, folks, then Jesus would have come and hung on a cross and went on his way, but he spent three years preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus wants every single human being to be in the kingdom that is coming. And so for three years, he, he, he went on his way doing the Father's will in the fact that he was preaching the good news. Sadly, many still missed the directions. Those who were here on earth, the, the Jews who had been given all the prophecies, they were, on, they, they were, taking their, they were navigating their own route to heaven, weren't they? They had made their own laws, not just adhering to God's law, but they added a bunch of other laws uh, to that. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus wants to get us on the only road that leads to heaven, and all we have to do is follow his directions. It's really simple. Some people will totally reject his directions, and that's their choice. They can do that. Some people will... Uh, will receive those directions, but then they'll take their own path. They'll do whatever they want to do. Only those who follow the, the, the directions that Jesus has given turn by turn will get to heaven. Did you know that? He's the only way. He's given us a clear path to heaven, but we can't just do whatever we want to do with those. We have to follow what he says. Jesus not only gave us the good news, but then as we receive the good news and we follow the path, well, then we became his vessels to, to pass that good news on to other people, to give them the directions. And we're going to get a lot of different responses in life, but that does not negate our responsibility to continue to do it. Do you know that? We're called to, to pass on those directions that we've been given from Jesus. I think if there's there's, there's, there's one thing that the church could uh, really emphasize on in the, this day and age, and it is passing on those directions for people to get to heaven. Listen, do not assume people know. That is one of the biggest errors that a Christian can make. Oh, I assume everybody's heard the gospel. How do you know that? And by the way, how do you know that this time they won't really hear it? How do you know that God hasn't prepared that conversation he probably has. If you're getting ready to have it, I'm just saying that the church, if we'll be dedicated to bringing those directions to the people in this culture, I promise you many other people will find their way as well. But not everybody will. Jesus said that it's a narrow, narrow gate and it's a hard path. He said that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Why is the gate narrow? Because there's only one way. The passageway to get on the road to heaven is single, a single gate, folks. You can't bring a group of people in there. It's one single gate. Only one person can pass through, and the only way that you can open the gate is by grace through faith. Jesus Christ is the gate himself. He's the door that gets us on the road. We have to believe in him. He is, again, the original Rand McNally, and we are the, the devices that God uses in our culture to, to share those directions with others. But here's the interesting thing, that there is a time limit on this invitation. 
There is a point in which the door in heaven begins to close, folks. And it's tied to one of two events, your death or the second coming of Christ. Those are the, the, the two moments in a person's life when the door of heaven will close. And if, you're, uh, you know, if you die and you didn't accept Christ, the door of heaven is closed forever. It's a serious thing. If you reside here on earth and you go through the tribulation period and you happen to survive that, which by, as we've been reading this, it'd be a miracle if you did survive that, but, but you, you, if you don't accept Christ during that time, again, the door of heaven will close as Jesus comes back. There's a time limit on it. And, uh, you know, so we need to be about his business and telling this world that the king is, is bringing his kingdom to this world. This is a no easy task for us as our culture has grown weary of hearing this. Maybe you've had those conversations with people. Oh, I know the gospel. Or better yet, oh, people have been saying Jesus is coming back for years. You ever heard that? Listen, do you know that that's prophetic? Do you know that Peter, he prophesied that in the last days, people would be tired of hearing about the second coming of Christ? Uh, he said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fall asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What Peter is saying is that scoffers will come and say, come on, people have been saying this about Jesus for years. Nothing's changed. It's all the same, and he's not coming. The world thinks we're crazy to believe that. Sadly, that mentality has even made its way into the church, folks. There are many people that, that although they believe in the second coming of Christ, they think it's so far off that it's not even worth pondering today. It's not even worth having the conversation uh, about. What I know is this, is that his return is sooner than when we first believed. That is the truth. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be caught off guard when he shows up. I want to be doing my, the Father's will. I want to be about the Father's business. And, and I've said it over and over and over again, but we have one purpose as believers and that is to go tell other people about Jesus. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. We're, we're here to be his messengers, to share the good news with people, to give people the directions of, of heaven. And listen, when, when the rapture happens, I want to be found doing that. Wouldn't that be awesome? You're sharing your faith with somebody. And you're like, hey, I need to tell you about Jesus, man. He came to die for your sins. He wants to be in relationship with you, but you have to turn away from your sins and repent and believe in Christ that he died and rose again from the dead. And, and you know what? You'll be saved. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're gone. Wouldn't that be awesome? They're like, whoa, where'd he go? I better believe in that Jesus. Or I want to be preaching a sermon. I want to be about my father's business, and I hope that you, you do too. We want to be ready. Jesus told us to be ready. Listen, uh, we believe the rapture will occur. Then the tribulation period will happen. And finally, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the second coming of Christ will occur, which will bring the kingdom of God upon the earth. And then Jesus will reign 
forever, Jesus will reign for a thousand years on a physical throne in Jerusalem. And at the end of the thousand years, there'll be another great battle. Uh, the world will rise up against Jesus. After living with Jesus physically on earth for a thousand years, the world will rise up against Jesus and war against him because Satan will be loose during that time again and will sway man. For a thousand years, he's bound up. The end of the thousand years, he's released. There's one final battle. And then, guess what happens? The Lord creates a new heavens and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem comes down, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But that, that's why we want to be ready, because uh, that process is coming soon. I believe that we're in the last of the last days, folks. And I don't care how many times you hear it, it's true. Uh, the, the disciples 2,000 years ago were saying, we're in the last days. If they said we're in the last days, we're in the last of the last days, folks. Time is short. And uh, we need to be ready for that. What we find in our text this morning is related to the second coming of Christ. The seventh trumpet that sounds is basically preparing heaven uh, to come to earth. That's exactly what it's all about. Although there will be three and a half more years at this point, three and a half more years of tribulation on the earth, at this point in time, when the seventh trumpet sounds, Jesus is in the stable preparing the horse and getting his army ready for battle. That's the stage in which we find ourselves. I've divided these, these uh, few verses up into four sections here in Revelation chapter 11. The first, we find the proclamation of his coming kingdom. Then the response of his coming kingdom in heaven, the ramifications of his coming kingdom on earth. And then finally, the communion through his coming kingdom. First, let's consider the proclamation of his coming kingdom in verse 15, where we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Here we come to what is called the third and the final woe, by that angelic eagle host in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. If you were with us, you remember that there, were de there was a declaration that there were three woes that were, that were going to happen. We just talked about uh, the, the second woe had finished up in verse 14, where it says the second woe was passed. In verse chapter 11, the second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And then the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which is the third woe. And the result of that, we find loud voices in heaven making the proclamation that it is now time for Jesus to come. His kingdom will now come on the earth and invade the kingdom that exists. Well, hold on a second. How many kingdoms are there? There's two. Originally, in the Garden of Eden, there was one kingdom. This was pre-fall. Adam and Eve in the perfect garden, you know, they were there. They were walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. The Lord was communing with them face to face and all of those kinds of things. Then the fall happened. They ate of the knowledge of the tree and good and evil. And what happened was the Lord ripped his kingdom from this earth. And he separated himself from man. But a new, a new kingdom was in store at that point. And every kingdom has a what? A king. Are you guys awake? Okay, king, right? Who's the king of the world? Satan. Satan 
became the king of the world at that point. And, um, and we, we see that it is singular, the kingdom of the world singular. There's not many kingdoms, although Satan's kingdom is divided. It's all one kingdom, the kingdom of the world. And, uh, you know, so Satan is ruling in this world today, presently. He's the ruler of this world. But he, he's not ruling in the sense that he is omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not almighty. He, he has power, but he's not all-powerful. He has authority, but he doesn't have sovereign authority. He has to work within the parameters that God allows him to work within. Nevertheless, Satan is presently the ruler of this world, and we see it illustrated very clearly in the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Jesus, uh, being tempted by the devil, it says the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so the devil shows Jesus his kingdom, which is segmented and divided, and he offers it to Jesus here. He knows why he's here. He understands he's here to gain the kingdom. And so Satan, trying to trick Jesus, how can you trick Jesus, by the way? But he tries to trick Jesus, deceive him, because he's the great deceiver. He says, you see the kingdoms out here, Jesus? I'll just give them to you. I have them. I I received them in the Garden of Eden when, when Adam and Eve sinned, and I will just hand these kingdoms over to you if you will just, what, worship me. That's what Satan desires. He desires for man to worship him. And Jesus, Jesus said, oh, yeah, I'll take the easy road, right? And he said, well, let's just do that deal. No, he didn't, actually. He used the Word of God, and he was reminded in the Word of God that we're to worship one one person and one person only. It's God and God himself. That's it. That's the only one that we're supposed to worship. There's a principle in the temptation of Christ here. And it is this, that when we find ourselves in great attack under, you know, deception and all of these sorts of things, we run to the word of God. The word of God is the light unto our feet. It's the lamp unto our path. It will show us the way. The Holy Spirit will use the word of God to lead us into all truth. If Jesus used the word of God in his temptations, I'm pretty sure that we probably should too. It's, it's probably a good idea to stick to the word of God and uh, not to our own words. It's interesting. People that don't understand their authority flex it. You know what I mean? You have a boss who's just been put in place and man, he's flexing his, his authority around the office and such. Uh, that's because he doesn't understand his authority. Those who understand their authority like Jesus, who understands his authority, he doesn't have to flex it. He understands what's going to happen. He could have said to Satan in this moment, well, I'm about to take it from you anyway, so no worries, right? But he didn't do that. He stuck to the word of God. Listen, we need to stick to the word of God when we find ourselves in these situations, and it will be enough for us, I promise. The demise of the devil's divided kingdom is been revealed twice in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. Once 
through a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and then once also through a vision that God gave Daniel. They're the same vision, a little bit different, uh, you know, picture, but the same idea of what's happening there. First, we'll talk about Daniel chapter 2. You can read it later, but it's the, the uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and you recall that he had dreamed about a statue that was made with four different types of materials. The head of gold, it represented the Babylonian empire. The chest and the arms of silver representing the Medo-Persian empire. The belly and thighs of bronze representing the Grecian empire. The legs of iron representing the Roman empire. And then remember the feet that were mixed with iron and clay representing the revived Roman Empire. That was Nebuchadnezzar's revelation of the empires, the kingdoms that will exist in this world, one toppling over the other, eventually to have this revived Roman army at the end here when at the time of the second coming of Christ. Daniel has a vision as well, and it's in Daniel chapter 7. Rather than seeing a statue, Daniel sees four different beasts First, he sees a lion with wings like an eagle representing the Babylonian Empire, a bear with three ribs in his mouth representing the Medo-Persian Empire, something like a leopard with four wings and four heads representing the Grecian Empire, and a fourth beast that Daniel declares was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong that had uh, large iron teeth. That would be the Roman Empire. They were just as he d described here, terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. Daniel goes on to, to reveal, though, that this beast, this fourth beast, had ten horns, representing this revived Roman Empire. Not only did he see the ten horns, but then he saw a little horn that rose out from the ten. This is speaking of the Antichrist himself. Daniel's vision goes a little bit deeper than Nebuchadnezzar's. He speaks about this little horn who, uh, who came and it was, was, had the representation of man. He said, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Again, this is the Antichrist. Daniel goes on to give more description about what the Antichrist will do during this time. This is Daniel chapter 7 in verses 21 through 22, it says, in this horn, or he goes on to say, he, the Antichrist will make war with the saints and prevail over them, uh, verse 22, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints uh, possessed the kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Here, Daniel talking about the Antichrist coming against the, the end time saints, those who became, become Christians during the tribulation period, and he will overcome them. He will kill them. Most Christians, that, most people that become Christians in the tribulation period will die, will die a martyr's death. 144,000 are sealed by God. They're Jews. They have a special purpose in this time, but uh, most, Christian, most people who become Christians in the tribulation period, the Antichrist will overcome them, meaning they will end up dying. But both of these visions end the same way. And that's with Jesus coming to destroy all of this. 
Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we see this gigantic rock come out of the sky and bust the statue apart completely. That little rock becomes a mountain, speaking about Jesus coming with his, his saints upon the earth and how that will just spread up, uh, across the entire world. Uh, Daniel's, uh, you know, Daniel sees uh, the, the Ancient of Days, which is a title for Jesus coming into the world. He will overcome the Antichrist and the, the demonic realm and all of those things that are happening in, in this time and the, the uh, battle of Armageddon where the whole world stands against God and Jesus will come and with, with a word, he'll slay the entire, uh, the entire armies there and it'll be over and he will then set up his rule and reign forever and ever. That is what John is talking about here. John is pointing us back to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and he's saying the exact same thing, but what he's saying now is now the time has come. The seventh trumpet is sounded. Uh, now it is time for Jesus to come and to set the world straight. I want to tell you, man, we are so blessed as people in this culture in this day because we have the word of God in our laps. We don't have to wonder what's going on in the world. I know we're, 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 we're on pins and needles wondering what's gonna happen in Russia and the Ukraine. We're wondering how the world is gonna continue to unfold in all of these kinds of things. Here's what God wants you to know. In the end, Jesus wins. That's what he wants you to focus on. All of the details that are going on in the world today are be all being orchestrated for that one purpose, it's setting up the world for the Lord to come back. It's not something that we fear because, you know what, we have the answers. We, we, in fact, we should be going into the world and telling people, listen, you want the answers to what's going on? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Everybody's going to come against Jerusalem at one point. The Lord's going to come back and he's going to restore his kingdom. That's exactly what's going to happen in a nutshell, right? We have the answers. We are, we are, we are so blessed and we don't have to be afraid of the things that are going on in the world because God has given us his word and we know that he does what he says. So we trust in his word. We, we don't worry about those things, of course. Be praying for the situation in Russia and Ukraine. There are believers there on both sides. And, you know, the Lord's doing something and who knows what will transpire. But you know what? Let it be a, well, let it be a lesson to us. The Lord said there'll be wars and rumors of wars. These are just precursors. These are things that are telling us that time is short. There are birth pangs that are coming on the earth. We need to be reminded of these things so that we can be prodded to do our job, to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel, to make disciples to people who need to know how to get to heaven. Only those who follow the directions of the gospel will be admitted to this coming kingdom that John is speaking about here I don't know about you, but I'm excited to enter that kingdom. But here we find halfway through the tribulation period, the proclamation is made of his coming kingdom. And the tense there in the phrase has become the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom, literally means that it's with certainty that this will happen. It's not a question. Next, we look at the, the response of this proclamation in heaven, verse 16 and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. 
It's interesting that every time the, the phrase 24 elders is mentioned, it's always with the exact same response. Let me illustrate it for you. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. Check this out. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Revelation chapter 7, verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, speaking of the 24 and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Revelation chapter 19, verse 4, when we get there, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, guess what they did? They fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. It is no surprise to us, it shouldn't be a surprise to us, that the 24 elders are now falling down and worshiping God. That's what they do. That's their response to the things that are going on in heaven. And here we find the 24 representing, we believe, representing the raptured church, the, the completed church. There, there's different views on it. Um, you know, again, we've talked about that. Uh, some believe it's the 12, uh, the 12 patriarchs of Israel and, and the 12 uh, apostles. Some believe that it's 24 apostles. Some, some believe they're all Jews. Here, here's what I know. It's 24 elders, and they fall down on their face every time something happens in, in heaven, and they worship the Lord. And it's, it's a reminder to us that, you know, here, the, 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 the idea here is the return of Christ and all that, in, that encompasses. And what do they do in response to that? They worship. Why are they worshiping? Because their prayers are being answered. They've been praying for this moment. Haven't you been praying for this moment? Lord, come quickly. P Lord Jesus, come and steal your kingdom in this world. Come, Lord. You know, the, the model, uh, a prayer Jesus said, thy kingdom come. They've been praying this over and over and over again. And, you know, sometimes we can pray prayers like that and we can wonder, Lord, how, you know, are you answering? Do you hear me, Lord? There's really three responses to prayer. One is no, one is yes, and one is not yet. And the Lord has been telling them not yet. But now it's a hard yes. Now it's time. Jesus is coming. His kingdom is now coming. They begin to praise the Lord and worship him. And look, look what they do. It says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun uh, to reign. They give thanks to the Lord for completing his multi-millennial plan to redeem mankind on earth. This has been going on for thousands of years, folks. This has been going on for thousands of years and, and, and uh, you know, an uh, you know, uncountable amount of people praying, thy kingdom come, Lord come, Lord come. And, and here we find these guys now giving thanks for the Lord completing what it is that he would, what it is that they had been praying for. They also are recognizing that God is worthy to be thanked. He's worthy to be thanked no matter what is going on in our circumstances. Here, a couple days ago, you know, our, our county mayor, Andy Ogles, had posted, a, uh, uh, you know, uh, a post on Facebook about his, his son that had died eight years ago. 
and uh, as a baby. His name was Lincoln. And, and, and Andy's response to that was, I'm not posting this because I want people to feel sorry for me. I'm posting this to say God is still good. God is still good. And, and that's true for you. And it doesn't matter what circumstance you're going through. God is good and he's worthy of get us giving him thanks no matter what it is that we're going through because he knows what he's doing. And he has a plan for our lives. So we give him thanks in all things. He, because he also is the Lord God Almighty. God has sovereign power. He is omnipotent. And not only that, but he is eternally present. It says that he is and he was. And guess what? He will always be. He is eternally present with us. He is worthy of our worship. Not only that, but he goes on to talk about his sovereign reign. That he has now begun to reign. Though that word begun there in the perfect tense means that he shall now exercise authority at a royal level to take his rightful place. The Lord has already won the throne. He just isn't sitting there yet, but he will now. He will now come to the earth and he will begin to reign from a physical throne on earth. There is a sense in which what the Lord is saying is kind of a total fulfillment of Psalm 20, 24 verse 1. What do I mean? Here's what it says. It says, the Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. There is a sense in which that is, that is true, but, but, but also the earth is also in it, the, considered Satan's kingdom at the same time. But when Jesus comes back, that will be the perfect uh, fulfillment of Psalm 24, verse 1, where the Lord, for everything, Lord will reign from earth and everything that is in, that in, in sight, he owns and he will rule. And that will be not just as creator, but as ruling king. Well, not everybody's super excited about this, as you can imagine. The 24 elders go on to talk about the ramifications of this proclamation on earth here. And they mention the, the idea of the nations um, were raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and, and those who feared your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers, of the earth. John writes, the nations raged. This is past tense. He's looking forward, but at the same time, he's saying the nations, the nations have always raged when it came to God. Do you know that? From day one, from the fall of man, the nations have raged against God. Why does it surprise you that our nation is raging against God? Should it surprise us? The answer is no. Why? Because we're not in his kingdom yet. Where the, the enemy is the king of this world, the Lord is in control, but, but listen, one day uh, the nations will no longer rage. But until Christ comes and sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives and he sits in the throne in Jerusalem, the nations will continue to rage against the Lord. Everything that represents God, therefore, they will rage against. And that's what we're seeing in the world today. We're seeing the world raging against anything that smells and tastes and looks like Jesus. That's because the nations are under the rule of Satan who is also raging at this proclamation. He knows his time is short, folks. And uh, he, 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 the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, he will rage like never raged before. Some have the idea that, uh, that the world uh, will become a better place. It will not. 
It will not. The nations will continue to rage until Jesus comes. And if you think the world is hostile now, you just wait. Just wait. It's going to get worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes back. Um, as, as time gets shorter, the rage gets broader and intense. The nations, honestly, their goal, their, their, their whole um, desire is that God would just go away and leave them alone. That's what they desire. God, just go away, leave us alone. We don't want anything to do with you. And yet, the Lord says, no, no, I, I won't do that. Notice he says here, not only the nations raged, but then the wrath came. That also is past tense. John, looking backwards over the entirety of the tribulation period, is saying the wrath of God has been poured out upon the nations who were raging. Why? Because God wants to get, him, wants to get these people? No, because God wants to save these people. God, as we've talked about, God uses his wrath. Always present with his wrath is his mercy. God is drawing people through his wrath. He wants people to be saved during this time. And yet, there is, a, there is a responsibility of man that has to, not only does God draw us, but we have to respond to, what, to his drawing, and we have to receive him. I like what John MacArthur said here about that. He said, the, the divine judgments people will experience during the tribulation should cause them to turn from their sins and submit to God. Tragically, however, even under such frightening judgment and warnings of eternal hell, most of them will refuse to repent and will instead harden their hearts. And he cross-references Romans 2, 1 through 10, which he says teaches that men refuse to repent in spite of God's goodness. They will be like Pharaoh who kept hardening his heart until the point when God judicially fixed his heart in that hardened condition. I couldn't agree with this statement anymore. This is a, a perfect statement as it relates to salvation. Now, it's interesting to me because John MacArthur is a Calvinist. And, and to, this kind of flies in the face of, you know, the, the, one of the five pillars in Calvinism, which is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace, the effectual calling of, of man to, into salvation to God. What they believe and what they teach is that people are so sinful that they have to be regenerated just in order to come to God to, in order to receive salvation. So they're born again, then they come to God, receive Christ, and now they're saved. But they're born again first. That's against Scripture, I think. The Bible says that we come to God through the drawing. He draws us, John 6, 44. No one can come to the Father unless he's drawn. We believe that totally. But, um, but man must respond to that drawing. And here's what God is doing in the judgment time. He's drawing people. Uh, you know, how many of you got saved through some negative circumstances? Like something bad happened, somebody died, or there was a tragedy in your life, and you, you got saved because of that. That was the catalyst that God used in order to do that. That would be, um, I, I know that's my story, and I know that's a lot of other people's story that I've heard. That's because we tend to wait for negative circumstances to come into our life before we listen. So God uses things like his wrath to, to wake us up, to get us awake, and then he draws us through that and, he, and he's trying to help us understand that he, he wants to be in relationship with us and, and he draws us that way but here's the reality 
He won't save people that don't want to be saved. He will not, he will not make you become a Christian. He will not make you follow the directions that lead to heaven. Uh, he, he will not regenerate you until you've confessed Christ as Lord. When you confess Christ as Lord, when you say, Jesus, you're my Lord, I believe that you died on the cross, you rose again from the dead, then you're saved, then you're born again. The Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you. You're redeemed at that point, you're going to heaven, you're sealed with the Spirit of God in your life. That does not happen until you call upon his name. And it's just interesting that he would point that out that that's exactly what he's saying. That man, the reason people won't come to Christ isn't because they weren't chosen. It wasn't because God's not drawing them. It's because they hardened their hearts. Because they've hardened their hearts. And I bring that out because I think it's important for all of us in this room because we can look at people like that and go, man, you just don't get it. Let me ask you this question. What is it in your life that you're hardening your heart against the Lord, against his voice? What is it in your life that the Lord is saying, hey, wake up, I'm trying to get a hold of you, and what things are going on around you? What circumstances have been brought into your life as a result of your hard-heartedness, your unwillingness to hear what he has to say? Listen, he loves you so much that he will put you through whatever he has to put you through to get your attention. That's how much he loves you. A true parent will discipline their children when they're disobedient. A good parent, a loving parent will do those things. And the Lord wants you to know this morning that if that's you and you're in those circumstances, you just call on his name. Don't harden your heart. Don't continue to harden your heart. Call on his name. He wants to redeem and save you and he wants to, uh, you know, whatever the circumstances are, he wants to work through them. But you have to have a soft heart. You have to have a, have a willing heart in order to hear what he has to say. It's so sad in this situation. God will spend seven years pouring out his wrath on this world, and at the end of seven years, you would think that all the nations would come and bow down before him. You know what they do? They rally the troops, and they wait for him to come so they can fight him. That's what they do, and that's the wrong answer. They, they, you know, it, that won't work. The wrath of the lamb will be poured out seven years, and then at the end, Jesus will slay the world, um, not because he didn't give people opportunity. And that's the amazing thing about it. And then the judgment comes. That's what he's talking about here. He's kind of given us a synopsis of all that's going to happen. And then the Lord will judge those uh, who, who, you know, have destroyed the earth, those who are contrary to the Lord, who have rejected Christ as their Savior. It's called the great white throne judgment. During that judgment time, the Lord will bring all unbelievers before him and they will stand before him and they will give an account for their sin. They will give an account for their life, for all that they did wrong, all the things that they, they have um, sinned against the Lord, they will give an account for and then they will be cast into the lake of fire, which was not prepared for mankind, but prepared for the, angel, for the devil and his angels. Was not prepared for you and I. What does that say? God doesn't want you to go there. It says that man has a responsibility, and if anybody ends up being judged by God at the great white throne judgment and being cast into the lake of fire, it's because they've chosen to be there, period. God is drawing people. He gives everybody all that they need in order to know, and 
if people reject him, then no one's going to stand, you know, at the great white throne judgment and say, God, I didn't know. We don't, we, we, we can't possibly understand how God reveals himself to people, but what we know is he's faithful and he will reveal himself, but there is a real judgment coming and people will stand before the Lord. It's a serious thing to think about your salvation. Paul says, you know, you should do it, you should, you should examine your heart with fear and trembling. It's a serious thing. But if you're in Christ, you have nothing to worry about. You're secure in him. And you don't worry about it. But, it, but you know, the question is, are you in Christ? That's the biggest question. If you're not, you'll stand at the great white throne, judgment, and he will destroy those who destroyed the earth. But that's not the only judgment that happens. Did you notice that he also references a time for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great. This is known as the Bema Sheet Judgment, which is really no judgment at all. It's more of a reward ceremony that happens in heaven where he, he, he brings all of the saints before him and he rewards us for, uh, not for our works. You will not give an account for your sin because your sin was crucified with Christ. The blood of Christ has removed your sin completely. You're never going to stand before God as a believer and him going to say, I'm accusing you of this, this, this. He's not, he's not an accuser. The accusations, the accuser is the devil. Jesus is the one that stands in the gap for us, and he paid the price. You're not going to answer for your sins. You will answer for your works. And that's what's being referenced here in this reward ceremony. Your works will be judged. You and I are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that he created beforehand that we should walk in. Ephesians 2.10. So God created you to do good works and he's going to judge those works. What does that mean? That means he's going to evaluate what, why you did those works, the motive. You know, did you, did you, you know, want people to pat you on the back when you were done and that was your reward or what? He's going to judge your works. Paul gives the illustration of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. He says, uh, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's works will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will what? Receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What is he saying? Some Christians will, will end up with heaven with zero rewards. Why? They're going to be saved. They're going to get into heaven, but they didn't do anything with Christ after they got saved. They have no works uh, to, to be rewarded for. Let that not be said of anyone in this room, that we would be people that would Walk in the works that he's placed before. You don't even have to create them, man. They're already created for you. He's done it all for you. He's paved the path for you. What else can he do? He's leading your hand down the, down the path to, to help you to walk in those good works. He's even equipped you to walk in them. And somehow we get rewarded. I don't understand that. But it's awesome that we do. And we will one day stand before him and we will, we will be rewarded for what we've done. Let me exhort you with the same kind of exhortation I give my, my children when they were little, not that you're little and my kids, but the, the, the application of this is good. We used to tell our kids when we would instruct them to do things, 
We need you to do three things. Do it right away, all the way, with a happy heart. Anybody ever say that to your kids? Do it right away, all the way, with a happy heart. If you do that with the word of God and the works that God has put before you, you're going to see rewards in heaven. I promise you. Right away, all the way, with a happy heart. Your motive isn't because you want to be patted on the back or anything. You want him to be elevated. All eyes on Jesus. You're going to see great rewards if you come at it that way. This leads us to our final section here where we find the communion through his coming kingdom, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within this temple. There were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, something happens in heaven. It says that God opens up the temple that's in heaven, and John sees the Ark of the Covenant, which is located in the Holy of Holies, in this temple, and, and, he's, and this is representative of the meeting place of God. We know the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, all of these things are very Jewish in nature, right? Here's the thing is the church never has or ever will worship in a temple where the Ark of the Covenant is. We're not going to do that. We'll be in the millennial kingdom when that is open and we see the way that it all works, but it all points to Jesus. Here, we're going to see why he's referencing that as we move into chapter 12, and he begins to talk about the nation of Israel and talking about the things that are going on. Again, two purposes for the tribulation period. One, for God to restore the nation of Israel. Two, to draw any unbelievers that don't know the Lord in these last moments to give them an opportunity to come to Christ. Those are the two reasons. And he's drawing it back to this idea of Israel, and we're going to see in chapter 12, verse 1, it brings us back to the nation of Israel. But, but the Ark of the Covenant itself speaks about communion with God. You recall that in the Old Testament, as they would, there would be one time a year where they would make a sacrifice for their sins. They would take the blood of that of that um, unblemished lamb, they would bring it into the Holy of Holies, and they would place some of the blood on the mercy seat, which is the center of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was there that God met with man. Man would not be able to meet with man without the blood sacrifice. It covered their sins. But when Jesus came, he, he sat on the mercy seat. He became the blood atonement for our sins. And he didn't just cover our sins. He wiped our sins away. The church worships through Jesus Christ, who is the sacrifice. Uh, the, the Jews will, will worship through Jesus that way as well. But we will still see that fully functioning temple in the tribulation period as well as the millennial kingdom. But check this out. It goes away. It goes away. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27 when God, after everything is said and done, after the thousand-year millennial reign and Satan comes back and then all of that stuff happens and he casts, every, uh, you know, the great white throne judgment happens, he casts those people into the, the, the lake of fire and such, he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem will descend upon the earth and there will be no temple in it. Check this out. I saw no temple in the city, which is speaking of Jerusalem, for, for the New Jerusalem, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp and the, and the Lamb. By, the, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, 
and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In the New Jerusalem, there will be no temple. God will be our temple. The New Jerusalem, by the way, is heaven. That's where we're going to be. If you're always wondering, like, I'm not sure where this heaven place is. I, I don't know. Is it up there or where is it? It's, it's in the New Jerusalem. That's heaven for us. There's a heaven that exists that we'll go to, is, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The New Jerusalem doesn't exist right now. But when we'll go to be with the Lord in and, and, and the heaven that exists right now, but that heaven's going away too. It's been defiled. The devil was resided in that heaven. The Lord will cast that, that heaven into the lake of fire as well. But listen, in the New Jerusalem where you and I will reside, all believers will be. The Lord will be the temple. There will be no light. We won't need the sun or the moon or stars or anything like that because the Lord himself will be the light. This is what we long for, folks. We long to be in that presence. This is what John is describing here, that communion with the Lord where we will be with him forevermore. Here's the reality for you and I. The kingdom of God has come. It's inside of us. But it is coming. For many people who don't know the Lord, that's a serious thing. Because when Christ comes, it's over. The door's shut to heaven for all of eternity. What that should do for the church of Jesus Christ is that that should, that should put a sense of urgency in our hearts. Listen, I know you probably have family members that don't believe in Christ or you have friends or people you care about that don't know the Lord. Maybe you yourself are here this morning. You don't know the Lord. Here's the reality is that you're not guaranteed tomorrow and neither are they. And we, God gives us opportunities to hear the gospel and to pass the gospel on. And you know what? We have that moment, and that's all we're guaranteed is that moment. We're not guaranteed the next moment or the next day. So I would say, respond to the Spirit of God and do what, he, do what he's prompting you to do. If there's somebody you need to share the Lord with, share them. Because the door in heaven is starting to close. The Lord's coming back soon. And, uh, you know, this whole nonsense of we've been hearing that for years and years and stuff, uh, it doesn't matter. That does not make it any less true. Right? We know one day Christ is coming. So be uh, passionate, be sincere with your relationship with Christ, and then share it with other people. That's the only reason you exist as a Christian. Until he calls you home. Go make his name known. And if you don't know the Lord this morning, call upon his name. He's drawing you. He wants you to be in right relationship. Man, you know, he doesn't want you to experience any of this stuff. He wants you to be on the other side, and he wants you to be coming back with him. Amen? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.